0: Greater Boston is known for a number of things. Bad, aggressive drivers, some say. If you're new, it just takes you a while to join in the fun. History on every corner, passionate sports fans, a certain regional pride, I think, shared by kind of all in New England. Strong, perhaps sometimes arrogant opinions, some would say, of... Greater Boston. And Greater Boston is also known for busy, fast-moving, highly motivated, driven people. And because of that, much good is done in Greater Boston. Because of that, many advances are accomplished here. And because of that, people of Greater Boston are often overwhelmed, exhausted, exhausted, stressed, and anxious. Those very things that lead to much progress often grind us up. I wonder if you've recently found yourself worn down, overwhelmed, crushed under the weight of all the things that you're trying to do, unable to sleep. I do want to consider that As we invest the days that we have, as we invest our lives, are we investing them well? Can we work hard and well in a way that's sustainable and healthy? How should we spend the days, the weeks, the years that God has given to us? And is there a way to have a measure of peace and health and still make progress in a busy, motivated city Like Boston. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So, if you have a Bible, turn me to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 127. Psalm 127, you'll find it in the Bible's near you on page 518. Page 518. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you as we walk through this short Psalm. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So, we're in Psalm or chapter 127. The smaller numbers, the verse numbers, and I'll mention those throughout our time together today. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today. The back of the room, there's a table, there's a sign that says free Bibles. Uh, Please just grab one of those on your way out this morning as our gift to you. Uh, Through the second half of July and August, this first week of September, we've been in selected Psalms. Uh, Next week, we'll start a new series for the fall in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, and so if you look at the bottom of the inside left side of the worship guide, there at the, it will tell you the text for next week and, and typically for the weeks ahead. So if you're curious where we're we going the next week, you want to read ahead, you can take note of that as we start in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel next week. So Psalm 127, a song of ascent of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis cultivate reliance on the Lord who builds fruitful lives. Cultivate reliance on the Lord who builds fruitful lives. And we'll look at this passage just in two parts. So, first, we'll see, unless the Lord vanity from the Lord fruitfulness. So part one, unless the Lord vanity, part two, from the Lord fruitfulness. So first we'll see unless the Lord vanity in verses one and two. We're told in the superscript that this was written by King Solomon. So the son of David who reigned following his father is the author of this particular psalm. And Solomon was tasked with building the temple in Jerusalem. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes this psalm. It was a psalm, originally a song, a poem, sung by God's people for their own personal use, but also, importantly, for God's people, in particular, as they ascended up to Jerusalem in this song of ascent, as they gathered to worship with God's people. And so as we think about this psalm, we can think about it on a variety of levels. There's a certain relevance for Solomon himself that we'll note from this. There's relevance for all of God's people then, the Israelites, and then for us today, and so when to think about it from those various vantage points, Solomon did have the unique task of building the temple of God, what was sometimes called the house of God. So at one level, as he speaks here of building a house, he, he's thinking of that, this task that he had of building the place for God to especially draw near to his people. As king, he also had a responsibility of coordinating the safety of the city, of the nation. So he often had to think about securing this place. The psalm certainly speaks of those unique circumstances, but it's an intended then to be a psalm for all of God's people, not just Solomon. And it's intended for all of God's people today, and that includes us as well. I mean, this idea here of building a house is also certainly included building a literal house, but more than that, a home, a life would be included in that. The psalmist writes of the protection of the city in ancient Israel of that day. Uh, cities had walls around them because you know, invaders would come. So the security of a home, the security of a city were essential aspects that one had to think about often. But of course they could easily become overly focused on the building of a house, the protecting of their lives, the protecting of the city. And in this, Solomon, Israel, we face a danger of seeking to do this in a way other than By relying on the Lord, other than relying on God. We see this repeated in verse 1 and verse 2. Look down at the text. He says, unless the Lord builds it, the building is in vain. Unless the Lord watches, the watching is in vain. So it's a sobering word that Solomon gives. Not that it's less fruitful, but but he says it's vanity. It will ultimately be proven to be empty, weightless, without value. So if Solomon himself were to try to build the temple on his own through self-reliance, it would be a failed project. If he were to seek to to protect God's people without relying on the Lord, there'd be no means of doing so. Friends, if we try to build our homes, our lives, apart from relying on the Lord, will ultimately be shown to be in vain. The self-reliant life, the life that doesn't rely on the Lord instead of relies on ourselves, the very best that you or I can produce, if it's from self-reliance, will eventually be shown to be vanity, in vain. Of course, we can apply this to one's pursuit of education, to our jobs, careers, if only grounded, friend, in yourself, in your efforts alone, it will eventually be shown to be empty, to be in vain. I wonder if you ever struggle with self-reliance. Relying simply on yourself. At least one is relying on that. That's yes, we, we so easily rely only on ourselves. And I know that for me, that's the the default lean of my heart is toward. Self-reliance. Over the years as a pastor, I have consistently struggled, especially at the beginning. But it still remains a struggle of truly taking a day off. Not because I'm so devoted, not because I'm so committed in so many ways, but simply because I'm so insecure. So fearful. And fundamentally, so self-reliant. Believing that if, I, that if I do take Monday off, that things will fall apart. If, if I'm not able to engage and do those things then, that it won't be enough. And I feel that tension every Monday, which is my normal day off, of doing instead of ceasing from doing. I wonder where you are currently tempted to rely on yourself rather than relying on the Lord. And what's the result of the self-reliant living? We see, verse two, it leads to this vicious cycle of rising up early and staying up late. So we rise up early because there's work that must be done and we believe it all depends on us and we we work all day. But day is not enough, so we we stay up late, continuing in the work. And when we do try to sleep, we can't sleep. Or if we do sleep, it's unsatisfying sleep because we, we feel guilty for sleeping because there's still more work, more study to be done. So we're either working or worrying about not working. I wonder when you know that experience, perhaps of the frustration of finally trying to get some rest, laying down in bed but unable to sleep because your mind is racing with the work that you just did or the work that you need to do. Friends, we're cautioned that we shouldn't be satisfied to eat the bread of anxious toil, verse 2. So we have a choice of whether we'll work and eat anxiously and nervously. But we should also be alert to see that there is some bread that will be produced. But this bread won't truly satisfy. But unfortunately, the dangerous part is that the presence of bread will make us think we're making real progress self reliant at work is so dangerous because it can bring success for a time. The fruit of long, endless hours can be substantial. So we worry, and we work hard, and we do get ahead. Self-reliance is doubly dangerous and tempting in our culture, in our city, because it looks so respectable. But if you live like this in greater Boston, you can accomplish a lot. You can gain degrees. You can climb the ladder of success. You'll get lots of affirmation. But if you rise early and stay up late in self-reliance, you will likely get applauded in greater Boston. You will certainly not get fired. No one will fire you and say, look, look, no, we're sorry. You're just just too efficient. We need less employees who work 24-7, so you're fired. That's not going to happen. So if you're just ground up, people will give you promotions. You'll be celebrated. And Almost no one in our city or on your campus will caution you against this. If we live like this, we'll fit in very well in greater Boston. But this does raise an important question. So is God against hard work to build a house? It is the call for the Christian to actually mediocrity, to not working hard. No. God himself created work before sin entered the world. So, so work has its place in our lives. There's a, a rightness, a goodness to work. Now, because sin entered the world, now work is made more difficult. And often work is toil the Christian is by no means called to say, no, God's called me to just sort of cruise through life. But it is to have a right view of work in life. And the reality is there's much good work to be done in this world. And as Christians, we should be above all good employees and good students. We should be diligent, reliable to get the work done. Since we're working to glorify God, that should motivate great diligence and focus in our working. So we wanna see, God doesn't say, don't get up early to work. I wish I could tell you that, that's just not what he says. He doesn't say, don't stay up late for work. But he does give us this significant principle, don't rise early or stay up late out of nervousness, out of fear of self-reliance. So our text holds out this caution of the danger of not relying on the Lord instead of relying on ourselves. But it also holds out to us a potential transformed outlook. We wanna see the potential here of work and rest that does rely on the Lord. So this Psalm is both a, a daunting caution but also a hopeful promise for us. And notice there's good news for the beloved that he refers to in verse two. It does raise the question, but who are the beloved of God? Well, on one level, again, points likely to Solomon, for that's what his name meant, beloved. So there is a way, it's an allusion to himself, that Solomon is loved by God. But fortunately, not only was Solomon loved by God. As a Christian, if that's what you are, you are among the beloved of God. You are loved by God, and that is your identity now in and through Christ. So this is not what we do, it's not what we earn, but through Christ, that's who you are. Now, how did God bring us in as his beloved? It's through his love shown to us through the coming of Jesus Christ, God the Son. We see this in 1 John chapter three, verse one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Friend, if you're a Christian, through the coming of Jesus Christ, God the Son, who lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death, was buried and raised, provide this free gift of salvation held out to any and all. when you receive that, that has changed the very fundamental identity of who you are. And a part of the good news is now in Christ, you are a child of God. And that is an unchangeable aspect of your identity, not based on what you do, Not based on your best day, and not taken away by your worst day. My friend, the more we really understand and believe that, it can free us in so many areas of life when we are secure in our identity in and through Christ. My friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would give part of your Sunday to join us. The Bible tells us that all of us are separated from God. We've all rebelled. We've all gone our own way. That's why Jesus needed to come, because of our own willful rebellion, our own rejection of God and his ways. But the good news of Christianity is not that we clean ourselves up, not that we earn God's favor through our hard work, but that that Christ came and completed the work. So now this free gift of salvation is held out to any and all. And I wonder if perhaps you've been trying to find significance, identity, in what you do in this life, in your academic success, or in your work, or in the accumulation of material goods, or in the building of a family. I wonder, have you found those to be ultimately, truly satisfying for you? We'd love for you to know this truest identity of being a child of God. So to the extent that you're interested, we would welcome you. You're welcome here every Sunday as we'll do what we're doing this morning, week by week. And if at some point you'd want to know more, we would love to arrange for you to be able to sit with someone and read the Bible and just let you consider Jesus on your own. And for those who are Christians, when we come to grips and rest in this reality, we're beloved of God. It can change the way that we live. Because, friends, it's worth considering whose approval are you seeking that drives you to work so hard? Whose applause are you running after? Is it, is it someone in your family? Is it, is it your parents? Is it your boss? Is it a mentor? Is it your professor? And you're on this treadmill always running for approval, and yet it's just never there, or it's never quite enough. Bring rest in the fact that you have complete approval as a child of God, immovable, Unshakeable, unchanging, because it's grounded in what Christ has done. And we see that in his kindness, what God does for the beloved, we're told that God gives to his beloved, verse two. That's what our God is like. He gives, and he gives, and he gives. That's his very nature. Extraordinarily generous God who gives to us and gifts big and small. And what does he give to his beloved in our text? It's kind of surprising. Verse 2 it says, For he gives to his beloved sleep, he gives rest, refreshment. So, one of the things that God gives to his children is this restful sleep, this restoring rest. And so, in light of that, what are we to do? The children of God are to humbly. Receive this gift. It takes humility and trust in God to daily stop working and go to sleep. When there's more work to be done, to say, I'm stopping, I'm putting it down, I'm going to bed. My friends, God intentionally created us to need sleep. He could have created beings who never needed rest, who just could go 24 hours without sleep, and God in his kindness and his grace created us in that way, and one of the reasons is so that it would help us to fight pride, it would humble us every time we're mindful that I need to sleep, I'm weak. And so we are face the choice, will we receive that gift from God? So friend, do you see how your sleep, even tonight, can be a means of fighting pride, cultivating humility. Now, I understand that many people really struggle with sleep. But even on the best night, it's hard for you to fall asleep. It's hard for you to stay asleep. And so by no means is this text, nor am I, trying to add guilt to you that you already have a hard time sleeping. Now you're saying, now I'm like, not receiving from God by not sleeping. That's not what I'm saying. But, but let it be a reminder to all of us that even when difficult, it's a reminder of our need, and of God's gracious gifts that he gives. Our gracious father gives to us sleep, and the good news is while we sleep, he never sleeps. Our heavenly father never needs rest. He doesn't go to sleep. Our kids, when they were in high school, you know, might, might go and I would try to, you know, stay awake they really needed me though, if they would have called my phone, probably no answer because I would quickly be asleep on the couch. Friends, our Heavenly Father is not like that. He never slumbers nor sleeps. You'll never be in a moment of need when, when He's exhausted, too tired to hear from us, friend. That is what our faithful Father is like. And the good news is, while we sleep, He keeps working. Our God is always working, always working out His purposes. And friends, he can do infinitely more while you sleep than you can do while you're awake. I mean, think about the the wheat farmer. Farmers have to work hard to have any harvest at all. And so they prepare the land. They they sow the seed. Each day, they have to diligently care for working towards a harvest. But, But we don't hear of farmers who, in the middle of the night, are out there pulling on the wheat plants, trying to make them grow faster it would be a destructive, fruitless effort. They can't make it grow. So though farmers work very hard, eventually you have to go to sleep and pray for rain and trust that God will bring the growth. And so it is for us. We, we do work hard. We work diligently. We study hard, but then we go to sleep and we say, God, I need you to work. and I'm gonna trust that over these next hours while I sleep, you are at work in my life and in the world. So, friend, we have these cautions. But on the other side of these cautions, there's a promise. There's good news. So the caution is, unless the Lord builds it, the builder labors in vain. But but if that's so, the the opposite is also true. If the Lord builds it, the builder doesn't labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches, the watchman stays awake in vain. But if the Lord does guard, then the watchman doesn't stay awake in vain. So, friend, there is a way that as we work with the strength that God gives to you, But your work doesn't have to be vanity. Your work, your study can be very meaningful, can be good, can be God-glorifying as he empowers us. So how do we seek to embrace and grow in this transformed view of living? I think there's wisdom to, to pray today that God would help us to feel the weight of this and actually believe this caution. So I think it's tempting to hear this and say, that sounds good. Someday I'll actually try to live in light of that. Or to think, well, it's just impractical. I and mean, he's a preacher. He doesn't know real work. He doesn't know the real world. So this can't really work in the world today. But to really feel the weight of this. And maybe the step today is to repent of self-reliant living. Maybe that's where you are, where you've been. And it may feel so natural to you because you've been there so long, it's actually hard to identify it. It's all you've known. Pray also perhaps that God would help you to discern your own heart so that you could ask, well, why do I stay up so late? What is really fueling me to rise early? What what, what are the insecurities, the fears? Where is pride driving this? Whose applause am I running after? Pray also that God would enable you to rely on him in in every area of life. I think so often Christians can compartmentalize certain areas of life. So if you lead a community group or or you were helping in children's ministry, it would seem completely natural, likely for you to pray and say, I need God's grace to help me in this. But friend, when you're about to do a couple of hours of work or or some study, do you pray, God, would you help me in that? Or do we think it's only in sort of what we would think of as church faith-related things where we see that faith actually impacts every area of life. So, So pray for all that we do in big and small. I wonder how could you intentionally choose to regularly cease from work? How could you say there's a certain time at night, typically, you're going to put your phone away. Do you know that's possible? Theoretically, of course, but you could put it away, put it in the other room, even turn it off. Close the laptop to stop working. Do you know that tomorrow... I've set aside a day for you to stop working, a holiday called Labor Day. Just think about that. So so many of you are not working tomorrow, but will you actually cease working tomorrow? It's also worth considering, friends, who will help you? If you want to make progress in this, I think you'll likely need someone to help you, and probably will need someone outside of the bubble that you're in. Because everyone else who's in your same bubble are doing the same thing, and so what you're doing feels normal to them. It's one of the many reasons we need a local church that includes people who are different than us. So if you're a, a mom of a newborn, you need others, but some who are not just moms. Or not just moms of newborns. If you're a student, don't only hang out with students of your same program, because the chaos that you're living in seems normal to everyone else. We're doing only hang out with people in your same industry. We need others who love us, who could ask us hard questions like, do you really have to do that at that hour? Well, what's really driving you to keep going? I friend, also consider how, if we live differently in this area, how we could be a light in our city. In a city that is so hard driving, that is so frantic. If in the midst of your program or in your workplace, you did work hard, you did glorify God in your work, and yet you knew a way to actually rest. That would be peculiar. Well, we're not peculiar when we're doing all the same frantic things and we're just as anxious as they are. We get to display something different that God is doing in us. And one more thing you could do, friend, would be simply to receive some rest from God. Receive sleep. I would come in to you today to try to take a nap. I would come in that every day if you can pull it off. I think naps are wonderful. I love them. I plan my whole week thinking ahead when that nap might work in. So here's the takeaway for today. Go this afternoon or tomorrow. Try to take a nap. Receive rest from God. So you see, unless the Lord vanity. And then second, more briefly, we see from the Lord fruitfulness in the rest of the psalm. From the Lord fruitfulness. The psalmist tells us that children are a heritage and a reward. And by reward, this is not saying that children are somehow earned. He's not saying that, that if you're good enough, you earn children. And if somehow you desire children and you don't have them, that somehow you're not good enough. That's not what the text is saying. But it is saying that if you have children, you must see them as a gift. All children. Or a gift from God. And friend, if you're a parent, do you see your children as a gift from God? It can be easy, tempting, to think of them as primarily something that takes from you. And it is costly to be a parent, but take from you sleep and take from you financial resources and take from you free time that you once had. Friend, do you see them as a gift? And we as a church must see children as a gift given to us as well as as these families are part of our church. Do we see every child as part of this church as a gift from God? It also tells us, verse 4 and following, that these children are strategic like arrows. Look at verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So God intends for children to be like a well-honed weapon like an arrow not in the hand of an amateur, but an expert warrior that can send it out for significant purposes. And the psalmist says children are like that, that they can be invested in, prepared, and then sent out into the world for significant good. Now, what is the good that children might do? Most of all, they would go out into the world and glorify God, to be devoted followers of Jesus and join in his great global mission. Quick note to parents this is God's design for us to send our kids out and to send them out to glorify God, not primarily to live our goals for them, not to fulfill our plans for them, for them to be the person that God has made them to be. So parents, God has entrusted these children to you. How might you steward them well? in order for them to be well-directed arrows, friends, it takes great diligence over the years to invest in and prepare our children for that. Children will not just naturally grow up to be well-directed, God-glorifying arrows. So we, in our lives, must be wise and intentional. We must be strategic and persevering. So parents, we must think and plan and give effort to help care for and train up our children. It won't just happen. Life is busy. And it can easily pull us away from this good, important work. So friends, we want to engage our children in faith, and we want them to see us engaged in faith. So friends, as a parent, do your kids see you as someone who's not perfect, but who loves Jesus, loves the Bible, loves the church? Studies consistently show one of the most reliable indicators, not a guarantee, reliable indicators of adults following Jesus is if their parents loved Jesus, loved the church, loved God's people. It's not a promise, not a guarantee, but let them see you love in that way. So it's worth considering, parents, what, what shapes the calendar of your family? When kids are really young, it's easy for certain activities or or sleep to shape it. When they get older, other activities to shape it. But friends, you shape it so that your kids understand that engagement with God's people, your engagement with God is valuable and important for your children. And friends, for those of you who are single parents, we see that you're called to do all of this in so many ways on your own. And so we, to the extent you'll let us and we're able, we want to bear this with you serve you in this daunting task as a single parent. Are we sufficient for the task? No. But God will give you what you need. He will empower you for this. He'll give you strength for the the earliest days of parenting and parenting adult children and everything in between. The psalmist goes on to say, verse five, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them my friends, I know there are many in our congregation who desire to have children and who've been unable to have children. That's a heartbreaking reality that we mourn with you. We desire to the extent we're able to carry that burden with you. But we also see that when possible, having children is a good thing. I mean, so often in our society, it's, it's almost thought of as a, it's a bad thing. Do everything you can in the world, and then maybe have a child at the end. But you start, see that there, if you're able, there's, there's a goodness, a rightness, there's a beauty to having children. I know on all sides it can be a challenging topic, so I, I would welcome a chance to talk with you about that. As we think about this, we also want to keep in mind that with the coming of Jesus Christ, he has transformed our outlook on family. As he broadens the scope of family, we see in the Gospel of Matthew, we see a time when Jesus is teaching and his mother and brothers come, and they want to speak with Jesus. And Jesus says this, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards his disciples, he says, here are my mother and brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So, friend, Jesus makes clear that in his kingdom, there is a new family that we're a part of. It doesn't undo our biological families, our our, our earthly families, but it does bring us into this greater family of the church, both the local church and the global church. So we are now in Christ, a part of this new family, living life together in the local church. And a part of what we do is, is raise up and send out arrows there as well. This certainly includes the children of our church, but but not just children, but also children who are new to faith, teenagers, adults, to help them train up, mature, and grow in godliness and grace. So all of us, for Christians, and this is our church, are to be engaged in this good work, investing in, helping to equip, raise up, and help mature one another in Christ. We do this in numerous ways, in structured ways, like a service like this, community groups, smaller groups, but also spontaneous gatherings for a meal or for coffee and conversations that have there as well. So friend, are you engaged, if this is your church, in that good work? Do you see that we share responsibility for one another together, to to work for one another's spiritual good? Friend, if you don't have children of your own, do you see this as a way for you to engage in spiritual offspring And friend, if you do have children, you still are called not only to those children, you are called to those children, but you're called to this family of God as well to have additional offspring in Christ. So the family of this church is called to invest well, and then for us as a church to send out arrows to the world, to train up new believers, to disciple them, and scatter them in greater Boston and to the nations. Now, one of the good byproduct of living in greater Boston is that a lot of people come and go, and so a lot of people go. And by the very nature of that going, we're sending out arrows to the world. So across the last 20 years of this church, we've sent out hundreds and hundreds of arrows to the world with the gospel. And that's a good purpose for this church. But it's also a painful purpose as well. Because you've been at Hope very long. You've gotten to know some people who were sent out, who were here for a year or for three years or for five years, for work or for a program, for a degree, and, and they went out. And you know the very real pain of saying goodbye to people that you've grown to love, that you've shared deep spiritual things with, that you've served alongside of. For instance, it's exhausting and painful. Every May or June, I myself feel this exhaustion of saying goodbye to people that we love. And year after year, that comes. And, and friend, if you've been around Hope, I, I'm sure you feel that as well. And somewhere in the back of your mind, if you're like me, the, the tempting thought comes, Well, well, I just can't do this anymore. So I'm I'm going to be at Hope, but I'm just not going to get to know anyone else unless they can verify they'll be here the next 10 years. So I'm just going to have a little contract for friendship. Why are you here? What are you doing? Do you have a 10-year plan? Okay, then I'll get to know you. Otherwise, I'll say hello to you, but I will not let you into my life. I realize that temptation. I've felt it as well. And you would protect yourself from pain. Friends, it's better to love and invest, and to say painful goodbyes in a year, or five years, or 10 years, than to miss loving and being loved to spare ourselves of this pain. So let's give ourselves to this, this fall as a congregation to love and to welcome, and to believe it's one of the reasons we're here in this city to invest in all that God would bring our way and then send them out to the world. For this a worthwhile life God has called us to. He's given us days and weeks and years. How will we invest those days? What will this fall look like for you? A grinding exhaustion? Or a freedom, increasing peace? and refreshment as you rely on the Lord. For there's grace for us, strength for you to make new steps this fall. Let's pray that it be so.